I often do coaching for um, physicians, particularly around chronic pain and chronic pain, you know, difficult interactions around chronic pain with patients. And um, we often sort of give them this phrase to put in their pocket. You know, I wish things were different. I wish I could do X, what you'd like me to do. Welcome to the Health Pilots Podcast, presented by the Center for Care Innovations. This podcast is about strengthening the health and well-being of historically underinvested communities. Every episode offers new ideas and practical advice that you can apply today. This episode is adapted from a recent webinar. Enjoy. For anyone who's not yet familiar with CCI, the Center for Care Innovations, we cultivate innovation within organizations, delivering care and services to low-income community members uh, by helping to spark, seed, and spread innovation and best practices in safety net organizations. My name is Alexis Walensky. I am one of the program managers at CCI. Again, today's topic is going to be practicing empathic communication. And we're thrilled to be joined by Elizabeth Morrison. Elizabeth is an expert trainer in empathic communication and motivational interviewing and has extensive experience working in federally qualified health centers. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Alexis. Hi, everybody. So I wanted to just talk for a minute about empathic communication. So the premise that underlies everything we're going to talk about today is that empathy is healing and judgment is harmful. And when I say harmful, I mean really harmful. You know, it actually is, you know, it harms our health, it harms our mental health, causes us to heal slower, it causes us to drink more, it causes us to gain weight. You know, it causes a stress cortisol response when we feel judged. And often I talk about judgment being in the category of bias, implicit and explicit bias, as well as stigma, which is, you know, how we might talk about judgment in the mental health field. There's that language around stigmatized conditions. And those are called all kind of a cluster of negative beliefs and attitudes that all of us have because we're all human and we've been the recipient of as well. We're sort of on both sides of those. And empathy is at the other end. So it's sort of a seesaw. And um, typically the more judgmental we're feeling, the less empathy we're feeling for the person in front of us and vice versa. The more empathy we're feeling, the less judgment we feel. So... Um, The research on this, I mean, I think as a spiritual principle, it's like the place that I connect with it really deeply and where I have spent most of my personal and professional life sort of deeply interested in this. You know, there is this sort of deeper spiritual aspect, I feel. Um, There is very, very solid research on this as well that I want to talk a little bit about. The power of conveying empathy because feeling empathy is one thing and then being able to communicate it effectively is a different thing. So there are sort of two categories of that. And there can be difficulties in us getting to the place of feeling empathy, like bias and judgments and being in a hurry and being tired. There's all kinds of things that make it difficult to access our empathy when we're mad at people. It's difficult to feel empathy for them. It's why we can say mean things to people when we're angry. And so there's one piece about getting to that point. And then there's a second part that when we have it, when we're feeling it, how can we most effectively communicate it? And that's really what we're going to talk about today. And what we talked about last time was two specific strategies around that. And today we're going to talk about two more specific strategies. Because there's nothing I feel like that um, 
is more sort of heartbreaking, you know, and I feel compassion for myself when I'm in this position. And then when I see other people, I feel like, oh, where there's a lot of empathy in our hearts for somebody. And yet we sort of miss communicating it in an effective way. So the person in front of us doesn't feel it. And in fact, they might feel the opposite, you know? And so it was just like, you know, ships passing. It just didn't meet. And when it is conveyed accurately, when people are able to really communicate this to another, it is incredibly powerful. There is almost a hundred years now of research on the impact of empathy on health outcomes. And that was started by Carl Rogers, who's actually in the mental health field, a psychiatrist who did very, very rigorous, rigorous research on empathy and its impact on patients getting better. And now in the last 20, 25 years, the great majority of research has actually been done in the medical field. So we have just this plethora of fascinating research around you know, when empathy is effectively communicated around the impact on people's efforts toward weight loss, on alcohol use, on depression, on self-reported pain measures, on common cold symptoms, you know, the duration and the frequency. You can almost go down every health condition that we talk about a lot in the helping professions and see that there's some research on the influence and impact of empathy from another, and in particular, empathy from helping professionals. It is very equal opportunity, which means that, yes, there's a lot of research on physicians and the influence of when they communicate empathy on the health outcomes of their patients. There's also a lot of research on nurses. There's a lot of research on behavioral health professionals. And there's really good research, really good emerging research on medical assistants and receptionists. Um, so, so it's very equal opportunity. It has, um, doesn't matter what position people are in, it has a really big impact on health outcomes. So the more we're able to stay in an empathic place and the more we're able to communicate uh, that empathy effectively to those we work with, the higher our job satisfaction is. Now, this gets a little bit complicated when we... There are different kinds of empathy. There's affective empathy, which is when we actually feel what other people are feeling. And that is not correlated with job satisfaction. That's actually correlated to burnout. So if you're one of those people that thought, I do not, <laughs> I do not want to hear you know, any more talk about more empathy. I have too much empathy and that is what is burning me out. That's a very particular kind of empathy. And the kind of empathy where we're talking about is sometimes called perspective taking. It's sometimes called cognitive empathy. It's really when we are imagining how another might feel as opposed to, you know, in, feeling exactly what somebody else is feeling, which can feel really overwhelming. And then it has, of course, a really big impact on patient and client experience. In fact, when we look at patient and client experience, it's actually always in the top one, two, or three at the you know very, very minimum. Um, it's right at the top in terms of what people feel like is important. Even in the emergency room, where you would think the biggest thing is like how long the wait is and how responsive. And you know, you would think that wouldn't be the most major concern. It's number one in the emergency room. Um, so it has a huge impact. And many of us, I think, are working in our organizations to really increase the supports for empathic communication within our organizations. And I think many of us have seen some pretty big leaps in patient experience as well. So this piece about why does empathy, why does it have such a big impact on healthcare outcomes? It's really fascinating. And it looks like there's three different and distinct drivers 
And the first one is that when we feel like somebody is caring about us, we increase our self-disclosures. So um, if you feel, if we feel like someone doesn't really care about us, so they feel like they're going to ignore us, they're kind of dismissive, um, and, and then judging, you know, is sort of at the end of that, of a, you know, um, a really sort of big stop sign for us. We don't, we don't make self-disclosures. So I often, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I almost never indicate that on those health forms when they ask about, you know, do you have a history? Um, I almost never indicate it because I almost never feel like somebody cares in that moment. Like I'm in the waiting room, you know, it's like, it's a dentist's office. I haven't been there. Nobody smiled when I came in. I'm pretty sure they don't read these forms. So that's not necessarily feeling like people will judge me. That's more feeling like, you know, I feel like it's going to be ignored. And I don't, I don't want to disclose anything meaningful that's going to be ignored. I just got the ACE screening questions at my own clinic where I see patients with a brand new MA who didn't know that I was... I'm actually the staff therapist, didn't know that. Um, and so I got a little window into, you know, almost like a secret shopper. And I did not answer any of the ACE questions, honestly. Has she left her mask on? I couldn't see her face. So I could, there was no way for me to register any smiling or any empathy. And um, the way she was asking them, I just thought, no, I don't, I don't think, you know. So you can see that, in fact, when you think about the people that you do self-disclose to or the helping professionals in your lives that you feel like you can share honestly with, it's typically the people that you feel care about you. And it doesn't have to be established over a long period of time. As humans, we will typically make a decision within the first minute about whether somebody is caring about us and whether we're going to actually self-disclose. And of course, if we don't self you know, when people don't self-disclose, then we can't really effectively help them, right? Because there's all kinds of important health information that they don't feel comfortable disclosing. So empathy increases important health disclosures, and that seems to have an impact on health outcomes. And the second thing is that when we feel someone is empathic with us, we're more apt to do what they recommend. And I'm sure most of us have had experiences like this, where you go to see a helping professional and they tell you, you know, what the recommendation is and you leave and don't do it. I've done this with medications. I've done this with labs. I did this with like a specialist recommendation about my daughter who, as soon as I left the office, I texted my husband and said, no, we need a second opinion. You know, he didn't even listen and he didn't even listen is like code for didn't have empathy. And so when we feel like people care about us, we're really more apt to trust the recommendations. Trust and empathy are very, very closely linked. And so obviously this impacts healthcare outcomes as well. And then the third one is what I think is one of the most interesting aspects. And this, I would say the research on this is newer in the last decade. And that is about physiologically what happens to us when we feel like someone cares about us. Physiologically, our bodies relax and our symptoms get better and our wounds heal faster. So if we think about ACE, adverse childhood experiences, and everything we know about the physiological mechanisms that are at play when somebody is in incredibly stressful environments in their childhood, is abused, is neglected. If we think about you know, what we know about the processes on the body, it's very, very, very similar. Um, when we feel judged, we really feel like somebody is... Um, that we're under attack, even if it's very kind of subtle judgment. And so our body fires up with this stress cortisol kind of protective response. And so we just don't heal or get better as quickly as we could. 
So last time in talking about kind of specific strategies uh, for communicating empathy, and once we have that, these tools can be super, super effective for people like my mom, if she would hop on here, which she's not going to, (laughs) who loves me dearly and doesn't have the most skillful responses to me. And I don't always feel empathy from her when I'm sharing with her, even though I know she loves me. And so that's really what we're talking about is when we have it in our hearts, how can we best communicate it? Last time we talked about reflective listening. The second thing that we talked about last time and that we also practiced was open-ended questions. And this is one of the... I've been consciously practicing open-ended questions with people, with clients and patients, with coworkers, with people I work with, with my kids, with my husband, with my brother. I've been consciously practicing open-ended questions for probably 20 years. And I still catch myself asking closed questions when I don't want to. Sometimes we want to ask closed questions, right? If you're standing next to someone and you don't really want to be closer to them, then we might not go into open-ended questions. I might not say to them, tell me a little bit about what you do. If I don't want to go deeper or closer in that conversation, I might say, where do you work? To make polite conversation, right? Which is a narrow, very narrow question. So this isn't to indicate that open-ended questions are always preferable. It just means that when we've made the decision that we want to convey care and empathy for someone, then asking open-ended questions is a really powerful way to do that because we're indicating to them, I want to hear what you have to say, regardless of where it goes. So um, we practiced these last time. We practiced questions that start with what, questions that start with how, questions that start with tell me more. Tell me more about X for people who have fears about open-ended questions. Like, ah, I can't open-ended questions. You know, people will talk forever. I'm always behind. I'll get trapped on the phone in a room. Um, the tell me more is a, is a great tool because it can be a very, very focused question. And it's still open and allows people to answer, you know, in their own experience. And then I put a little, you know, uh, over the why, kind of a reminder that even though why is an open-ended question stem, it unfortunately conveys judgment, even when we don't need to. It always feels a little bit like a finger wagging. Um, so, you know, why did you stop taking your medicine? Sounds really different than tell me about, you know, stopping taking your medicine. And this is, you know, this is really true with kids for those of us who have kids in our lives. If you ask a kid, why did you do that? The chances of you getting quality information back from that are very, very slim because it inspires a level of defensiveness. So um, there was two different strategies that we were going to talk about and practice today. And one of them is affirming strengths. And also just those of you who are motivational interviewing trained and or those of you who this just comes naturally to. For many people, this comes very naturally. Affirming strengths is a really specific strategy where when somebody is sharing with us a difficulty, whether that's a client, a patient that we're working with, whether it's our brother-in-law or our teenage son, um, when they're sharing something that's difficult, before we follow the problem, before we delve deeper into the problem, we take a deep breath, put on our glasses and look for strengths. It's like, I really think of it as putting on like a pair of 3D glasses Like what about what they're sharing? What does that tell me about what is good about them and what their strengths are and what they care about and what they value? Like, where is it? And and once you put the glasses on and look for it, things just pop out. 
So the adolescent who sits in my office and says, I think therapists are bunk and I don't even want to be here. I kind of, whoop, hold on, put on my glasses. Um, and then all of a sudden I see, oh, you're really straightforward. I really appreciate your honesty. Um, you didn't have to say that. You know, you didn't have to tell me exactly how you were feeling. So thank you. Right. It's a strength. Um, when people tell us how much weight they've gained over the holidays, we know that that means that they care about their health, um, that they're troubled by this. When people talk to us about difficult relationships that they have in their lives, it means that they really value those relationships um, and that they, you know, they want them to be strong and harmonious. So it doesn't matter what the difficulty is, we can find strengths. And when we take a minute to share with somebody what we see, it really, really makes people feel whole. Like, oh, this person doesn't see me as a walking problem. I'm already feeling a little bit like that. Maybe I'm already feeling a little down about myself around this. And this person sees me as good, capable, whole. So a lot of um, often affirming strengths, these are um, stems that are common. We don't have to use these. These are just common stems. Is we might say, I'm so impressed by blank, right? I'm so impressed by how hard you are trying to cook more healthy meals for your family. I know you feel like that you haven't been successful. I'm just impressed at how much you've tried and stayed on this, right? I'm, I'm inspired by. I'm inspired by how open you are with the difficulties about your relationship with your adult children. I think this is really hard for many people to talk about. And I'm really inspired by the fact that you're just laying it out there, you know, um, to share with others. I find my, I use this one quite often um, when I'm listening to someone and I put my glasses on, I'll say, I can hear how much, you know, how important this is to you. I can hear how much you care about this. I can hear how much um, excitement you have in your voice about this. I can hear how, how deeply you've worked towards this or something, you know, to that effect. So these are common stems. I'm going to do a quick demonstration with Wes from CCI. Um, a quick demonstration, just so you know, we didn't, we don't have a script, and I actually don't know what Wes is going to say. And I was telling the CCI team right before this webinar started that I always get a little nervous about demonstrations because I think it's really important not to practice or script anything because none of us are doing that in real life. And there's always like this chance that I'll go a different direction or do something like that feels really unskillful. And that's totally okay. Um, that does happen to me in real life. Um, so I just wanted to tell you that we didn't work this out beforehand or anything. So I'm going to ask Wes an open-ended question about something that he has been struggling with that he feels comfortable sharing with me about on this webinar in front of all of you. So Wes, if you can, if you can share with me something that might have been difficult for you lately. That would be great. Yes. Um, so in light of everything that's been going on with the pandemic, I, I hear this idea of like just getting mixed messages. I mean, from external folks, from even within my own family about what to do, what not to do. I live here at home with my uh, fiance and we have an 11-year-old who's transitioning to junior high. And so there's just so many things with his education and also with just what is okay and what is not okay for us to do. and there's parts of me that feel actually a lot of myself that feels unsure that I, I can't like definitively say one thing or another or support my family in one way or another for the, for the fact that I don't know if it's completely right or the safest or the best thing to do. So sometimes I find myself feeling stuck 
or like mm-hmm. a stalemate, so to speak. And yeah, that, it, it's, it's been really difficult. Mm-hmm. It's been really difficult. I can hear in what you're sharing that you really want to be able to care and protect your family. You have a, like, it sounds like you have a strong want to really be able to give them the right information to help them in their own decisions to, to provide them guidance and good information. And it's really especially hard for you right now when you feel like you can't with all the mixed messages. Yeah. As, as a co-provider, it's important for me to certainly ensure that our family feels safe, certainly our child and, and to know that I'm at least going in a particular direction that I can feel some level of like assuredness and confidence about that we came to the decision as a family or with me and my partner. It's been really challenging. Yeah. I'm going to try the impressed stem because part of what I'm hearing when Wes is sharing is this feeling about his role in the safety of his family as a co-provider, like that his role is, is really to put his arms around this family. And so let me just try it and see if it fits. Um, Wes, I'm so impressed with how thoughtful, how deeply thoughtful you're being about the safety of your family and really wanting to do what's best for them um, and what will keep them safe. Let me just pause for a second and ask, how, how was that, Wes? That was very reassuring. I felt that I was really felt I was being listened to. I had also hadn't rehearsed it. I just only thought about what, you know, that has really been challenging in recent times and even currently. And it was, it just felt the sense of being heard and validated. Good. I'm so glad. If I had said to Wes, well, you know, let me tell you where I'm getting my information because I really trust this source. Have you tried just logging into the public health text alerts and things like that? I feel like I just do that and I don't look at any of the other news and I just stick to that. You know, what about something like that? It would have come off as something I'd probably heard, like another thing that I've probably heard from others. Yeah. Right, right. And it still would have come from a place of care, right? Like I would still feel like I wanted to help you. There's something though about trying to solve the problem that doesn't feel caring, even though it comes from that place, you know, because Wes would have probably been like, yeah, yeah. You know, you probably would have checked out of the conversation a little bit. You're like, yeah, yeah. I should, you're right. I should do that. You know, <laughs> we've all heard it. So I just wanted to point that out because. Our first instinct, I think for many of us, is to give advice. And so I just wanted to really, really encourage everyone as we practice to do whatever you can to take a breath and see if you can avoid doing that and just affirm. So the second thing that we're going to talk about, and even while I was just thinking this through and talking with the CCI team about this, I was thinking, ah, this is such a huge topic. So I just want to put it out there and say this is a huge, complex topic. And I just pulled a couple of things out of it that I think are so interesting and things that I practice in my own life, sort of one of my own rules about not to talk about anything that I'm you know, not practicing in my own life. Um, and that is about repair. So we're specifically going to talk about apologizing, which is one form of repair. So one of the things about repair, and the reason that I picked this picture of the socks being darned is because... Um, there's a lot of research that shows that when two people end up in a successful repair, whether that's a patient who's mad about having to wait so long in the waiting room, and that's the only you know relationship right there, the interaction, or whether that's with our partners, you know, um, our decades-long partnership, that 
when we're able to successfully repair, that that relationship is actually stronger than if there had not been a rift or a wound. And that is super interesting to me. I'm a soccer player. I got my ACL repaired like every other soccer player, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I can remember the surgeon telling me, you you will never tear that ACL again. You'll tear your other knee, but you won't tear this one. This is going to be stronger than before. And even then I heard that, you know, I heard that sort of psychologically, you know, like that's so interesting. And I just had an experience with a team that I was working with about three weeks ago. It was only the second time I've met them. One of them shared a difficulty, a difficult clinical situation. And um, I thought we were doing clinical supervision and I didn't take time to affirm. And I went into a little bit of kind of problem solving and I could tell right away I missed the mark. Like she was not, (laughs) it was not what she wanted or needed. Um, And I got nervous about repairing right then and I didn't. And then when we hung up, I just felt like "Ah, I have to repair. You know, I just, I don't even, I barely know her. And I sent her an email and we picked up the phone and I just, I said to her, you know, really quickly, I could see I missed the mark. I'm really sorry. You know, I feel like I launched into trying to help. It wasn't helpful. And uh, I said to her, I'm kind of hoping this is one of those micro tears where our relationship gets stronger as a result um, at the end of it. And she said to me, oh yeah, I totally dig scars. We're definitely going to be stronger as a result of that. And I, now I say that sometimes, oh, I totally dig scars. You know, just the, just the notion that a rift is repairable and can actually be for the good of the relationship. I feel like is such a hopeful, it's such a hopeful concept to me. So I wanted to talk, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of research about apologies and repairing, specifically in the helping professions. So in therapy relationships, in the healthcare field, there's a bunch. In fact, there's an excellent book directed at physicians called The Power of Apology that I worked for years with the CMO who bought it for everybody in the whole organization. You know, uh, everybody in addition to the physicians that is just amazing and kind of a great summary of some of the research. I just want to kind of clarify like definitions right now, which is an apology is when we say we're sorry for something we did. A regret, which is also an apology, it's a particular kind of apology where we might not have done this. So if we think about, we all work in organizations, we all work in organizations that don't do right sometimes by the people that, you know, that we're trying to help or that someone, you know, unintended on our end, you know, felt harmed, wounded, they waited too long, nobody called them back, they felt judged at their appointments. And so often we're in the position of needing to repair that wound and we didn't actually specifically do the harm. So we're speaking on behalf of the organization. And this is really this piece of regret where we can say, I'm so sorry you didn't get a call back. And then the third one is wishes. There's a whole canon of research on wishes, which is really interesting. And that's really that phrase, I wish things were different. When we're talking to someone, when there's nothing we can do to make it better, you know, we can't actually make amends or get them seen quicker or you know, we can't make it right that they weren't called back twice in a row or that their medication never made it for refills. To be able to say to you know somebody, I, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish I could do something about this. I wish this were different. I often do coaching for um, physicians, particularly around chronic pain and chronic pain, you know, difficult interactions around chronic pain with patients. And um, we often sort of give them this phrase to put in their pocket. You know, I wish things were different. I wish I could do X, what you'd like me to do. Um, so these are just, again, not scripted in any way that I know that's not helpful. Just to give some sort of examples and put some words to this, 
And the one thing that I will say about apologizing is that we all grew up differently around apologizing. You know, some of us grew up in families where there was no apologizing. It was like someone got the silent treatment for a week and then it never happened, you know, and then you just go back. So, you know, this kind of just sweeping it under the rug or, or punishing. I say this to my daughter sometimes. You're punishing with silence, <laughs> um, but no apologies. Some of us might have grown up with a lot of over-apologizing. You know, this t- often is where women get raised. Sort of say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like someone sticks their foot out and trips me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. You know, um, sometimes we grew up where every time we apologized, you know, somebody wouldn't... There was no way to graciously accept it. It was like, well, why did you even do it? You know, where we sort of get punished for apologizing. Um, so the only reason I share that is that often we carry that into adulthood, in our adult relationships, and in our professional roles as helpers, where um, all of the different struggles we might have had or conditioning we might have had around apologizing kind of comes into our relationships. And that's really why I wanted to talk about it today, um, because it is such a rich area and it is so deeply important in terms of being able to um, feel willing to engage in it, wanting to engage in it, not being scared of it, getting out of that, like it's admitting fault and what does that mean? You know, that sort of covering your butt kind of thing um, and being able to have some words where we can feel like we can do it skillfully. So just as a quick note, in case put it under like all of the things, you know, um, that you probably know because we've all been on the other end of apologies is um, it needs to include an acknowledgement. You know, something happens. It's an acknowledgement. Empathy. A lot of times that's conveyed by tone. So someone has to believe that we are sorry and amends when, when it fits. All of us have been on the other end of these. These are like the ones that feel terrible. I'm sorry if, sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry, but incongruent tone, over apologizing. So all of these are sort of like pitfalls if we can try to avoid them. And then um, I'm wanting to let me just then um, practice for a minute with Wes again on something that we didn't practice. Let me do a quick practice and let's let's then open up for discussion about this. So I'm going to practice affirming strengths. So again, the same practice with different content. So I'm going to ask Wes to share... Um, well, let me just say directly to Wes. Wes, can you share a little bit about your current relationship with apologizing? What that's like for you? Hold on. That was a stacked question. Just so you know, where you ask two questions. Are you close with your family? Are you close with your dad? Um, so let me start again and just do one question. Um, Wes, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with apologizing? If I just reflect on a recent time where I feel like I, I felt the need, <laughs> I needed to apologize. Now, I think in, in, in my age, I feel I won't apologize until I sincerely mean it. I think about recently when I just sort of like snapped and blew up at my partner verbally and sort of my first step in knowing that, hey, this is my apology was simply just, just simmer down really like for self, like I'll just, just stop or turn away, walk away. I don't necessarily see that as an apology, but I, I know at least for a fact that it's leading to there or at least that, that's my indication of what I, what I want to get off communicating to my partner that I'm making steps toward an apology. And uh, only knowing when I, uh, I'm fully calmed down and, and, and have thought it through, do I, you know, come back at a later time with a clear, clear mind, clear heart to to come back to apologize. But it's sort of in that sense where 
is sometime ha- will have to pass, be it a few hours or even the next day or however many long to be able to come back and talk about it more at length. I can hear so strongly how important it is to you to be genuine and sincere and that you don't, like you just do not want to apologize before you can be in that place. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important to me. I, I think, yeah, that, that just what you said about being uh, like really authentic about it and, and, and at the right place. And sometimes it comes to the chagrin of my partner because she doesn't know, she might not know how I'm feeling, but I just know that for myself, I need the space to process before I can actually come back and speak about it. But I also find some pitfalls in not knowing, uh, sort of giving her the markers as far as where I'm at with regards to that. So we sort of stay silent from one another or angry until you know, I can come forward to apologize or she shares her part too. So I just wanted to point something out, which is from affirming Wes, from just not, I wasn't following any of the content, any of the specific difficulties he was sharing. I just affirmed what I saw as good and strength in him. And just from doing that, then he continued to talk. He wanted to sort of keep talking and dig a little deeper in this. And that's really, that's really common, you know, that then people feel like, Oh, okay. You're hearing me, and you know the way you're hearing me is that I'm a whole person, and you're seeing my strengths, and then that makes me want to like talk more to you and more deeply. So, um, thanks for being willing to do that. Stay west. Of course. 